Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues involved with the business of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. Got a great guest today, interesting guy. His name is Tim Young. He has a website, Small Farm Nation. He has a business about small farming. You know, a lot of times here on the Business of Ag, we talk to, you know, the national pork producer uh, guy or the the lady that's, you know, at a big scale of uh, commodity agriculture. And that's great. That's our industry. But as you hear me in my speeches and in my Facebook, et cetera, you hear me talk about the value of niche agriculture. We live in a society that has, and after all, the United States of America has 25% of the global economy. 25% of the global economy with less than 5% of the globe's population, which means there is room for niche agriculture, value-added non-commodity agriculture. There's a reason that you go to the store and you see cage-free and you see uh, organic, all this kind of stuff. So I've got a guy here that actually not only does niche agriculture, he teaches others who want to live the dream in the country, how they can have a small farm. His name is Tim Young. Mr. Young, welcome to the show. Damien, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. So uh, you heard my introduction, but I didn't do a good enough job. Tim Young was a corporate guy. And then he said a few years back, I don't want to do this. I want to kind of have a lifestyle and a, a, a business that helps me have the life that I want. Take me back. You're a corporate guy. You're a little older than me. You're in your mid-50s. So when was this uh, epiphany? It's 1995. I had, at that point, had been working 13 years for a large communications company. Our, our company owned uh, direct marketing firms, uh, cable networks, radio stations, all the newspapers. Back when newspapers were a thing, we owned newspapers all around the country. And I had spent eight years at that point as president of a division of that company, running a very successful direct marketing business. And it's a weird thing, Damien. It's, it was, I was really successful making a lot of money. And yet I wanted to leave. And why was that? And it, this is a hard thing to describe probably to anyone other than someone like yourself. It's just that I saw, you know, my, my, my superiors there. I saw other people who were making tons and tons of money, but they were trapped. If, if you know what I mean by that job. And I said, I don't want to be 50, which is what you're going to be next week. I said, I don't want to be 50 and then be trapped by this job. I, what I want out of life is freedom. And for some reason, I associated freedom at that point in my life with entrepreneurism. And I said, I'm going to quit and go start a business. And it's an easy thing to say, but it turned out to be kind of a hard emotional thing for me to do. But that's what I did. On my other podcast, my Do Business Better podcast, I have uh, an episode coming up with a gentleman who uh, was a school uh, administrator, athletic director. And he told me, he said, starting and maintaining and running a business is the hardest thing I've done in my life. Now, there's a guy that probably had his government employment and probably looked uh, from the outside at anybody that runs a dry cleaner or the, uh, you know, the restaurant franchise and says, oh, well, that's not hard. I could do that. It's much harder than people realize. So you quit corporate America where it was good money. You had a pretty nice situation and you said, I'm going to walk from this again. How old were you? Early forties, 34, 
34, okay. 34, 34, you know, had the big house, had all the trappings. Look, I had talked to so many people who said, well, you know, many people say things like, look, if I didn't have a big mortgage or if I didn't have a kid or if I didn't have the boat or whatever, if I didn't have these payments, I would go start a business. And something scared the heck out of me, Damien. And I said to myself, I don't want to be that guy later in life that says, well, if I wouldn't have had those things, I would have done it. So I had all those trappings and I still ended up making the jump. Now, having said that, it was hard jump for me to make it. Here's the chicken chip way that I did it. What I basically did was I, I was living in Boston at the time. I read the Boston Globe uh, religiously. I would read all the entrepreneurial stories. This person's got a great business. This person's a great got a great business going. And I called them up and I went and interviewed them in person. And basically what I was trying to get to is how did you find the courage to start your business? And I talked to five successful entrepreneurs that were doing everything from, you know, wine distributors to service businesses or whatever. And here's what I learned from all five of them. Not one of them wanted to, they all were downsized or they had lost a job or whatever. And then they just started a business. I couldn't find one person who actually had a great job and was, you know, thought well of in a big corporation that decided to chuck all that and then go take the risk. Uh, so I had to overcome that, but I overcame that by wanting freedom and not wanting to be that person who would say, well, if I didn't have these trappings, I would do it. Yeah. So uh, I, a similar thing for me, I wanted to be creative and I wanted to be more in charge of my compensation. So I became a political comedian. And then I always point out that uh, folks say, Oh, well, you know, you're self-employed. There's no such thing. We all work for other people because we need their money and as customers and clients. So tell me about your farming business. Tell me how, you know, you're, you're 34 years old you're living in Boston. Uh, that doesn't sound like a small farm to me. So no, what not, was the next step? Yeah, not at all. In fact, uh, in fact, I didn't go to farming at all. So what I did was I started when I quit that job, I bootstrapped a marketing services agency. We provided marketing services to big B2B technology companies like Cisco systems or Hewlett Packard or SAP, those kind of firms. And I spent, you know, eight years building that business. And after five years, it started with me in a basement, just myself. Five years later, I had 450 employees in six countries and was the 130th fastest growing company in America, according to Inc. Magazine. So it was a real high growth, fast paced ride that I couldn't explain to my mother what I did. I couldn't explain to a five-year-old kid what I did. And I learned this reality that you know, it just bothered me back then. It still bothers me today. The most of, of the real lucrative money that gets made in this world is made in professions that you can't explain to somebody what you do. And I had this longing to do something real. So fast forward, I ended up moving. I, I ended up um, selling that business, moving to Atlanta uh, in 2004, something like that. And then my wife and I, you know, started reading all these books, you know, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan and watching all the movies and reading Joel Salatin's books and these kind of things. And that just kind of lit a fire in us that we wanted to do something real. So I bought 126 acres out in rural Georgia and said, let's move out there and start a farm. Now that sounds like a bizarre thing for everybody. And people said, why would you do that if you had no farming background? Well, because I had an entrepreneurial background and as, and as an entrepreneur, it's just another challenge. I've got land. Let me figure out how to make some money with it. Yeah. So the, uh, you're dead on that. It is still business. Now, a lot of folks that listen to the business of agriculture, uh, came from an agricultural background because almost nobody joins it more. So we come from it. You did not come from this background and you opted in biggest adjustment. 
Well, there are a lot of adjustments. One <laughs> one adjustment was going to the country, right? Because I mean, wow. I'm I'm an hour and ten minutes away from a Starbucks. <laughs> that was a hell of an adjustment, or sushi, or anything else. Yeah. So yeah, you're living in Boston. It's like, hey, you want sushi tonight, honey? Sure. Yeah. Oh, you know what? You want Thai food? Sure. Hey, about Italian? Sure. Uh, now you're in rural Georgia. None of the above. You got Tasty Freeze. Yeah. Uh, not not the yeah, not only that, you know, that food, you and some of those places you can actually call somebody and they'll bring the food to you. You can get it delivered. You know, we, we can't imagine this idea of having Chinese food delivered or whatever. So there was that adjustment, of course, in lifestyle. But of course, there's also a lot to learn about farming. I mean, any business, but now this is no different than any other business. If I was to start a business, uh, again, a marketing services agency or whatever, you've got to learn what's what the critical success factors are for that industry and for that business. So I had to learn a lot about if I'm going to raise people pigs, if I'm going to raise cows, and, produce, and I produce grass-fed beef, we raise pigs in the woods and produce pasture poultry, we raise chickens on pasture and produce both both pastured meat chickens and also the eggs, uh, we raise sheep and did lamb, um, and you know, we also butchered those on farm, I had never butchered a chicken or a pig or anything, so we had to learn all that stuff as well, and the land that I bought was from a former dairy farmer, this is a, you know, a typical old um pit a milking parlor where you milk six uh, cows on each side and you know the typical of 20 30 40 years ago that they had these and he used to milk 100 holsteins out there until 1997 or so but by the time i bought the land this was his back 40 it was really back 100 and he hadn't farmed it in 10 years because nobody could make money in dairy and all that kind of stuff they couldn't figure it out well what I did was we restored that to a working milking parlor. I started milking 24 Jersey cows. And I know what you're thinking with your audience, how can you make money with 24 Jersey cows? Well, you, you can't, you know, unless you're going to sell raw milk. But what I did was we started a, a artisan cheese business. So I had to learn how to make cheese as well. And we made about 30,000 pounds of cheese a year. Um, I got pretty good at it. I won awards at the United States cheese championship. I won awards at the American cheese society. I won awards overseas and that allowed us to get some exposure. It allowed us to sell our cheese to whole foods and Kroger and other places. So, you know, when you, where there's a crisis in the dairy industry now, as you know, very well, but, but one of the solutions for that that I try to guide people through is adding value to the products. If I'm just selling commodity milk, it's tough. If I'm taking that milk and turning it into artisan cheese, it's much higher value only if you can create a brand and learn how to sell it. And that's what I got good at doing. Yeah, so uh, you're speaking my language as I talk to my ag crowds. Again, there's nothing wrong with commodity production. The guy that rents my land is a large-scale dairy operator. He just came here yesterday to look at the alfalfa on my property. And uh, I'm fine with those things. It's just uh, that one must realize you're either going to be a commodity producer and the way to make it and be profitable in commodity production is you've got to be bigger and cheaper. Right. And so there you are with your 126 acres in rural Georgia. You don't have a thousand owned acres that was grandpa's that you can uh, rely on. You don't have economies of scale where you can just say, you know, we're going to be big and efficient and cheap. So you've got to then specialize. You took your 24 Jersey cows which by the way, I'm a brown Swiss guy. If I, if I decide I want to have a dairy operation, make artisan cheese, they're going to be brown Swiss. I think they're beautiful. Great. Uh, 
<clears throat> so there you go. And how'd you find your, okay, you made the cheese. So did you have to create a production facility or did you just take the milk to a cheese maker and say, make this on my behalf? No, I made it myself. Uh, we, as part of the dairy that this person had, uh, there was a room next uh, that, that he used to store his huge milk tank in. You know, he's milking 100 cows and sure. getting a lot of milk. And I didn't need a big milk tank like that. So I turned that room into my cheese make room. In the old days, by the way, Tim, in the old days, they called that the milk house. Ah, the milk house. Well, I turned the milk house into the cheese room and got it inspected and passed inspection. And then I created a cheese cave because this is an important part of it too, uh, Damien. Um, You know, if you're going to start making cheese, you can make anything from fresh cheeses like mozzarella to very long aged cheeses, you know, like a cheddar for five years or whatever. And this, this gets into the essence of how you want to have your defensible competitive advantage in your business place. And in my case, I knew that everybody who was going to come in and start making farmstead cheese and trying to go sell to a store was going to probably, first of all, they're probably going to milk goats because goats are smaller and everybody likes to do that on a small scale. That means they're going to make chef or somebody's, you know, milking cows or whatever. They're going to make a very young cheese, a fresh cheese, most likely because that's how they get higher yield and that's how they flip cash flow. So I decided to make long-term aged cheeses. I specialized in Gruyere. I made cloth bound cheddars. Um, I made a a long aged blue cheeses similar to a Stilton because I had the ability to build the cheese cave and wait the six months to get paid. When you make long age cheeses like that, you don't get paid for six months, but once you get past that first six or nine months, Damien, then you get paid every month because your cheeses then have been aged, they're in inventory and so on. So I chose that as my competitive advantage and it worked out real well for us because very few other people would make those kind of cheeses. Yeah, so it took you longer to get your money, but when you got through it, you were able to make more because you had a, a bigger specialty. Well, uh, not, not only that, if you make a cheese like mozzarella, okay, it's fresh, which means it's perishable. It's high it's high moisture content, so it's good today. It's not good in a month. When I make a cheese like a cloth-bound cheddar, it's good in six months. It's incredible in nine months. It's unbelievable in 13 months. I, I mean, I've got a year to sell that cheese. Uh, so I, I, if you're not comfortable yet with your market that you are in your marketing, then that gives you a longer window to sell it. And that means that you don't have to concede on price. You can hold out for people that value the premium product that you're producing, which is critical if you're going to do niche marketing. Okay, so you were a niche marketer, cheese processor, cheese maker, and then what came next? Well, what we we ended up having a child late in life for me. We ended up having a child in 2012, and decided that we what was important to us as a family was maximizing all of our time together. So this probably gets off topic for some ag listeners, and we'll bore the heck out of them. But basically, we wanted to move away from the farming enterprises that were labor intensive for us. That meant that we didn't want to do pasture poultry. We didn't even want to do grass fed. We sold our herd of Murray Gray beef cows, beautiful herd that we had. Uh, We stopped doing pasture poultry. We sold our, you know, we had a herd of 100 plus Ossobal Island pigs, sold those. And everything I did then was just making the cheese. Because believe it or not, once you build your brand around that, it doesn't take much time. To milk cows, people always think, you know, if you're tied to milking, it takes so much time. 24 cows, you know, took me an hour a day to milk them twice. I mean, it's, it's nothing. And then making the cheese, right. I would make the cheese every couple of days. You know, it didn't take much time to build a pretty high volume business, but we still wanted more time together. So we ended up packaging that business and selling that farm 
farm business to another couple so that we could then homestead, which is what we really wanted to do. So today I still have a cow. I've still got a bunch of chickens. I've still got sheep. I've still got pigs, but we don't sell any farm products to anybody. We do all that for us and spend all of our time on our land. Yeah. So now you're, you're not in, you're not in, cause a lot of ag people, that I deal with, they're like, okay, they don't really want to deal with the consumers. So, you know, they're, they're big scale production. And uh, then there's the folks that say, yeah, we have this other farm enterprise. And then you've got to cultivate customers because that's the challenge of small niche ag is cultivating customer base. And, you know, people can say, oh, go to farmer's markets. Tim, there's all kinds of people that think you can go to a farmer's market. Some, what, you know what, the day it rains, when there's three customers there, you show up and you sell $18 worth of stuff. We'll try to make a living selling $18 worth of stuff the challenge is always customers. You had it, you had accomplished what a lot of people did not to the point that you can even sell the jerseys, the milk parlor, the milk house that was turned to your cheese cave and cheese processing facility. And then you said, I don't want to do that anymore. Now you're truly doing ag just for you and your family. Is that it? That's right. Homesteading just for us. And we, you know, organic grass fed beef is very expensive to buy Damien and it's very cheap to grow. <laughs> I've got a cow out there right now. It's just eating grass. And that's, you know, we have our cow once a year, we process our pigs, we process our sheep and our chickens and get our own eggs. And it's all organic and it's all our stuff, but we don't want, we're not selling to other people. So this allows my wife and I and my daughter to spend all of our time together. But what I learned, not just in farming, I've learned this in my other service businesses as well. But I'll say this in a farming context, and I say this to a lot of people, and if somebody doesn't agree, that's fine. They can have their own opinion. What I believe and what I learned is that direct market farming, meaning not commodity farming, but you're growing a product for that you're going to sell directly to consumers. It's it's 20% about, success is 20% about growing and producing and 80% about marketing. You have to be good at creating a market, at servicing a market need, at commanding higher prices and getting those prices. And what I found is that most people who go into small scale farming, they either don't have the skill or the confidence to do really effective marketing. So what I do today through smallfarmnationacademy.com is I, te either, I either teach them how to do marketing through online video training, or I provide one-to-one -one coaching to my members. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I talk a lot to my ag people about the business of agriculture. I'm just using the name of this podcast. And I say production is one of those things that we're really, really darn good at. Um, but in the industry, we need to get past telling everybody because we still in ag tell our customers how productive we are. I said, do you realize that the suburbanites that live next to me in Phoenix, where I live during the winter, if you keep telling them how productive you are, you know what their response is going to be? Oh, well, that must be why I have to subsidize you. Uh, so we need to get past the production and move into the promotion. And that's, what's great about what you do with your business. You now are coaching people. They say, I want to have a rural based small business. That's farm and ag based business. Uh, I need to build a market and you bring that to them. And you say, I'm going to teach you how to be a marketer, how to be a salesperson, how to brand your farm or your product. Is that pretty much what you do? It, it is. It is pretty much. And, and I think a lot of this applies to commodity farmers as well. I mean, here's an example. I mean, not everybody's direct marketing, right? I mean, Coke, you're drinking a Coke right now. Coke didn't sell you that product directly, but they, but they did marketing to create brand preference for you so that when you go
going to the store, you go, where's my Coke? I want my Coke. So, you know, whether you're commodity farming or direct marketing farming, it's similar. You've got to create that brand recognition. But what, you know, one of the things I want back in my corporate days, Damon, if you go back well over 20 years ago, being part of a fortune 500 company, we had to create these <laughs> unbelievable business plans, about 180 pages once a year, I'd have to create it. And then the next year to the CEO, I'd have to defend last year's plan, talk about what changed, whatever, here's this year's plan and whatever. And so I developed some pretty, you know, concrete, you know, opinions about the effectiveness of business planning. So most people start farms with a business plan and most of the business plan templates you see out there are just garbage. I mean, people, people fill them out, they put them in a drawer, they never ever use them. So part of what I created for, well, not only members of the Small Farm Nation Academy, I actually have this free on my website, is I created a one-page farm business plan. And this is the thing that I walk people through. If you're gonna start a farm business, or honestly, any business, there's eight questions. Eight questions I ask them, I put them in boxes on this plan that I walk them through, answer these questions, and then you're ready to start your business. So I like the simplicity of it because I actually, I'm not a huge business plan person. In fact, I've never had one. I think about my business. I come up with goals for my business. I know where I'm heading with my business, but formal business plans, 180 page document. That's just such proof of the, of the nonsense. You spent more time typing up 180 pages than you did actually doing something of substance that month. Uh, the problem is they don't move, you know, they just don't, they just don't have enough flexibility in a rapidly evolving marketplace. So with your farm people, you ask them eight questions. Can I ask you a couple of those questions? Yeah, we, I can go right through it if you want. Sure. Well, let's say, okay. So the person listening to the business of agriculture is an ag business person. And they're saying, I'd like to know what these eight questions are because maybe I can up my game a little bit. Well, you know, so if you can, if you can visualize this as a grid, basically, you know, it's, it's not nine questions to say, but, but visualize a grid where there's nine boxes. When you get to the center, this, this is the last question that, I, that I'm going to ask them, but this is where that I'm leading them to end up. They, I want them to, to decide before they start their business, before you you start a business, I want you to decide what is going to be your defensible competitive advantage. How are you a unique? Now, how I lead them there is here. First question is mission. Why am I doing this? This is where they ask themselves questions like, what am I passionate about? What are my goals? What do I hope to accomplish with this farm business? And why is this important? So they've got to get clear on their mission. That's question number one. Why are you doing this? Question number two is, okay, now that you know why you're doing this, what? are you going to sell and for how much? So they got to ask some questions, some questions like what products will they sell? How are they going to price them? What's their pricing strategy? And then that leads into question three. Okay. I, I know what, why I'm doing this. I know what products I'm going to sell. How will I distribute to customers? This is where you get to those, you know, things like farmer's markets and people think farmer's markets is the way to go. And I'm sorry to insult people out there. I think farmer's markets are a very bad strategy for direct market farmers. I have lots of reasons why, but they, they, oh, I just gave you one of the reasons why remember, uh, you, you know, here, okay. You're in Northern Indiana. Uh, it could be 94 degrees and humid and nobody shows up or it could be 37 degrees and sleeting. Nobody shows up. So you're going to have all this stuff. You're going to haul your crap to this place and you're going to have zero customers or three customers. I agree with you and the average consumer has this mystic vision that we're all going to be out here with our little gardens and our bib overalls on and we're going to haul stuff to a farmer's market. 
the biggest problem that you're talking about, they don't have, this is where I guess I'm stepping in here because I get your other questions. Why do you want to do this? You know, what's your, all those kinds of things, but getting rid of the product, you know, I could grow uh, grain sorghum out here uh, in, in my farm in Indiana, but where would I go with it? So you've got to have a way to get rid of your stuff. You probably are going to tell me, start already by thinking about where the customer is before you even plant the seed or grow the pig, right? Well, I mean, I believe that you've got to, and I get to this in a couple of questions, you've got to define your target segments. I am definitely not an advocate or a believer in this myth that people put out there of defining your ideal customer and define your avatar and all that kind of stuff. Damien, think about yourself, for example, you know, you're a speaker, you're a comedic speaker, and you speak about agriculture. You don't really care who hires you as long as they pay you the money and they get you a good audience. That's, that's who your, your ideal customer is, whoever values you and pays you. That's your ideal customer. Well, a lot of people get hung up on my ideal customer is Sally. She makes $35,000 a year. She's 35 years old. She has two kids. Bull shit. That is not, that, that doesn't exist. You, you, so you, you want to answer the question of who will you target, but the answers, the questions there are, is it a local market? Is it a regional market or is it a national market? If it's a niche market, what is that market? And then you've got to ask yourself questions like, do the customers need education? In other words, do they have an active need for what you're offering or do they have a latent need where you've got to make them aware? For example, you're offering, you know, pasture poultry or whatever it may be or raw milk is a better example. You're offering raw milk. Do they know about the benefits of raw milk or the benefits as you perceive them of raw milk? Or do you have to spend a lot of marketing dollars to, to create awareness there? So, you know, in these questions, yeah, why are you doing this is important because you've got to start there. What are you going to sell and for how much? What are your channels? How are you can go to market? Is it farmer's markets, farm stand, e-commerce, distributors, restaurants, buying clubs, TSAs or whatever. Then you've got to go to, the next question is competition. What alternatives exist? Most people get hung up on their direct competitors. Okay, I'm a farm, there's another farm. Well, competition means replacements, it means alternatives. You know, it also means ones that you can't see today. There was a time when, you know, there wasn't all this meal delivery stuff. And is that a competitor for you? There was a time when there wasn't a crowd cow, you know, or a butcher box or those kind of things. Are those, are those competitors for you? Or are they alliances for you? After you go through that, your question is, well, what are your cost structure? What, what are your critical costs and metrics for your business? Now, you know, this could be, um, you know, your input cost if you're buying feed. Um, you know, how are you going to measure those costs? Um, you know, what, 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 how can you respond if cost increase? And this is what killed the dairy farmer that I bought that farm from years ago. In his business model, they were, he was squeezed by two things. He had no control over feed cost when he had to buy feed for his cows and he had no control over what he got paid for milk. Talk about a recipe for disaster. You do not want to be squeezed there. You've got to have control over your prices and what you're charging people. And if, if you don't go through this one page plan up front and define these things, you might get surprised later. Yeah, well, the average person that's in ag, meaning at commodity production, is both of those things. As you said, they, they have to buy their inputs for whatever the input costs are, and they have to sell their product for whatever the market price is. So you can withstand that if you're of scale. But you're talking about consulting and coaching people at a small scale. There's no way they can withstand it. So you tell them, all right, 
can you control what you charge? And so one of your big things I assume is giving them enough uh, value through promotion that they can charge a premium price. Yes. Yes. Uh, there's no doubt in, in any of these businesses, you have to produce a good product. I mean, you love Coke, but you wouldn't be drinking the Coke if it tasted like crap. You drink it because it tastes good and you also like the brand and, you know, the brand awareness there. Uh, same reason people like Starbucks or like Nike or like anything else, you know, that, that, that's their brand of choice. You know, I go to Chick-fil-A because my daughter loves it because they have a great playground. So anytime I'm driving, it's going to be a Chick-fil-A. I'm going to stop at never a McDonald's. So yeah, you've got to have brand, you've got to create brand awareness and you've got to get people seeking you out. It's really critical in niche farming because here's the biggest problem to niche farming. We are inconvenient. If you want to buy pasture poultry or you want to buy raw milk or whatever, is that nearly as convenient as going down to Safeway or Kroger or Publix or whatever? No, it's a, it's a lot harder. So you've got to get people to go past that hurdle. And you're going to do that by creating a relationship with them. They know they're a farmer, they trust you, and you have a brand that they value. That takes, that takes marketing chops to do, but there's a lot of farms out there that have done a great job with that. So it can be done. So where does this industry, I agree with you. Yes. The problem is it's, it's a more inconvenience, more inconvenient to go to a park on Saturday and buy your produce there than it is to swing by after work, any of the other seven days of the week and stop in at Safeway and grab your vegetables. So it is inconvenient that there's a, an association and that's what you're selling. Where do you think this goes? Where do you think, you know, you, you're helping people create their profitable small farm or homestead or whatever do we see does this grow or is this about where we are or does it go away no it grows but it, it doesn't grow it's, it's not going to take off exponentially like everybody's going to all of a sudden have to have this i mean the whole the whole the whole population is going to grow damien so of course it's going to grow but um you know i used to tell people that the average person, I mean, I mean, when I say average, I mean the typical person, the, the overwhelming majority of people are always going to want the cheapest chicken from Walmart. They are not going to want the $5 a pound chicken that you produce locally. That doesn't mean there's not a market for it. There's absolutely a market. The reason people choose to have a farm life, a niche farm life, Damien, this might surprise you, isn't because of money. It isn't because they have a get rich quick scheme. It's because they value this lifestyle. But as you know, and I know, if you want to have this free, independent, wonderful lifestyle, you got to pay for it. So that means that you've got to choose a business model. You can't, the worst thing you can do that so many people do is they just say, Hey, I'm going to go out and start a farm. Well, great. There's a lot of money in farming. You know, we all know because we put it there, right? You know, so they're just going to go waste a lot of money by doing that. They have to decide what's their advantage going to be, how, what is their business model and how are they going to make money? In other words, they have to treat this like a business and you, you might be surprised or maybe not at how few people treat this as a business. I actually agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, whether that's the person that's a mega rancher or a, a small farmer, it always does have to come down to treat this as a business. And we have a problem that many of our consumers somehow think it's not. And, and I write about this and I talk about this. I'm like, you know, nobody in a consumer world thinks that Ford Motor Company is somehow supposed to just be backwards and still making Model Ts just for the fun of it. But somehow agriculture is still supposed to be this, you know, wholesome thing where we just... Uh, you know, we're all out here just growing vegetables for the fun of it. It has to be a business. You help people become agribusiness people on a small scale, and they can find you, by the way, any of my listeners that want to find you, Tim, find you at smallfarmnation.com. What else do they need to know? 
That's it. Smallfarmnation.com is where I'm at. I also do a weekly podcast about these kind of issues where I talk about the business and marketing of direct market farming and anything else they want to find out about me, they can find me there. Fantastic. Tim Young has been my guest on this edition of the business of agriculture. Check him out. He's a, he's a smart dude with a corporate background that decided he wanted a life in the country and he's doing so through his own niche in the business of agriculture. Tim, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Damien. Thank you. Best of luck to you. All right. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture.